Commandments. We took a, a week off. You all took a week off last week, and I, I hope that you were well served by hearing the stories from world changers. And I, I want to say once more how proud I am of this congregation for all that it does to support the young people of this community and sending them on that sort of experience. I don't know whether or not you know this, maybe you don't, but there is not a kid who pays to go on that trip. Because of their hard work in fundraising and through generous gifts of this congregation, any kid who wants to go, any youth who wants to go on that trip to serve God, to learn about God for a week is able to do that. That is an amazing testimony to your faithfulness and to your belief in missions and in our young people. And I want to say thank you for that. This is a time when you'd be able to applaud yourself. But we are continuing our story, our journey through the Ten Commandments. And so far we have seen how there are these sort of two breaks in the Ten Commandments. There's what we might refer to as the first table, which is the first four commandments, and the second table, which would be the second, so the, the, the six, last six commandments. We've seen how the first table is all about love of God. We see that, right? That, 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 that those commandments are all about how we are to love God. The second table, these last six, are about how we are to love our neighbors, how we are to love others. It's also important for us to remember that the purpose of the law is not to give us a set of rules by which if we follow them we can earn our own salvation, because that is not possible. The purpose of the law is in fact to show us how incapable we are of earning our own salvation, how incapable we are of meeting all of the rules, and therefore to show us the need for God and his grace. And to show us what his holy standard is, so that once we are saved by grace through faith, we can seek holiness. You know, as we have looked at some of these commandments here in the second table, I think we've seen two trends. I think the first trend that we have seen is that when we first look at them, we think that they are going to be very easy to follow. Honor your father and mother, don't kill other people, and don't commit adultery. Those come across as some fairly easy things to do. I don't know about you, I have not killed another person in at least 39 years. And I'm only 38 years old. But as we've looked at them, this is the second trend. As we've looked at them more closely, what we see is that, in fact, they are not easy. And what we see is that if we are to truly follow them and truly seek the mind of God in following them, that they will challenge us, confront us, and show us our sin and our need for a Savior. And so today we are looking at the Eighth Commandment. I, I, I almost hate to ask you to stand up with me as we read the Word of God together because it's only three words, but will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? We are in Exodus chapter 20. We are looking at verse 15, and it is three words. Do not steal. This is the Word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let us pray. Dear God, as we gather again today and open your word, hungry for what it teaches us, thirsty for the water of life that it provides, 
God, I pray that we would come to your word with open minds and open hearts, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Barna Research. Uh, it was founded by George Barna. George Barna no longer works for them. He's moved on to some other things. Uh, Barna originally worked for the Gallup organization who does polling, and, and Barna was a pollster, and, and he started Barna Group to do polling in service of the church. And so there are a bunch of interesting studies that have come out of Barna over the years, but there was one that recently relatively recently, that showed that 86% of adults claimed that they were totally satisfied with the Eighth Commandment. Now, I do have to question what those other 14 were dissatisfied about, but 86% of adults claimed that they were totally satisfied. After all, it's a, it's a great commandment, right? Do not steal. Who of us want our stuff Stolen. As someone who has had stuff stolen on multiple occasions from me, not a big fan, just to be honest. In fact, when, when someone steals something, depending on how it happens, it can feel like a pretty gross violation, can it? Have any of you ever experienced that? Have any of you ever come home to see your front door kicked in? It's a, it's a, it's a you feel violated. Even if you never see the person, even if you're never confronted the person, even if it's not, you know, a dark alley in New York City and someone throws you up against a wall and says, give me your wallet, you still feel violated. And we think this is great. I don't, wanna, I don't want my stuff stolen. This is a good commandment for thieves and for robbers and for villains. And after all, we don't really steal anything, do we? There's this um, cover on a Saturday evening post, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's by Norman Rockwell. You, you may have seen it. It's, it's from the 30s, and it's a lady, and she's, she's buying her Thanksgiving turkey from the butcher. And, they're, you know, and it's a very typical sort of Rockwell Americana. They're at the butcher. They're smiling at each other. But if you start paying attention, you'll notice some details. It's not a normal smile at each other. There's almost a smile on each part that they're getting something over on the other one. And if you pay even closer attention, what you'll see is that the butcher has his thumb on the scale, trying to pull down the turkey so that it's going to weigh a little more. And, and if you see, and if you see the, the woman, she's actually got her finger on the, other si- on, the, on the other side of the scale, pushing up, trying to, to make it weigh a little less. And they're smiling at each other with that look that says, I know something you don't know. Now, I think, I don't know. I mean, after all, these aren't real people, Right. But I have an idea that by looking at the picture, you're definitely supposed to be given the impression that if you were to go up to that butcher or you were to go up to that woman and you were to say, are you a thief? They would say, of course not. They would be offended that, they, that you would think that they might be a thief. But the truth is, they are, aren't they? About the same time that that 
illustration was on the cover of Saturday Evening Post. My grandfather was working as a butcher. And in the course of the Depression and World War II, my grandfather had to start cutting meat in the cooler. He couldn't cut it out at the counter because there was rationing. And people would try and get him to ignore their ration card to give them a little bit extra. Women would proposition him for more meat. Now, I don't think that any of those people probably would have thought of themselves as thieves, but they were. They were trying to get something that was not there, something that they were not entitled to. In his little book about the Ten Commandments, entitled Keeping the Ten Commandments, J.I. Packer lays out a few ways that we might steal, but we might not think of it in that way. There's, there's, the, there's the theft of time. How many of us have ever been guilty of coming in early or coming in late or leaving a little early? Fudging our timesheet a little bit. Taking a little bit too long at lunch. Stretching that 15-minute coffee break a little further. Wasting time. It's theft of time. There's the other side of that. There's, there's theft of wages, which maybe is a little more straightforward. This is a significant problem in our country. We see it all of the time, in which employers make employees work overtime without overtime pay. Make them do work in their off time. When I still had a job in which I worked for a wage, I would refuse to do work that I was not being paid for. Because that's theft. That's the stealing of my time. And unfortunately, I had an employer that was really big on asking us to do things and prepare things that were for work in time that we wouldn't be compensated for. There's, there's, also, there's also the sort of theft that we sort of see in that Rockwell picture, right? Trying to, to move things around a little bit so that people aren't really getting the value for their money that they think they are. The Bible has many commandments about false weights and measures. As someone who used to live on occasion in the 18th century, this was a, this was a thing. That was one of the reasons that that coins were marked and proofed so that people would know how much of the precious metal was in the coin. And and that was one way in which inflation would happen even when you had a hard currency because the government would start skimming out some of the gold or the silver that was supposed to be in the coin, devaluing the currency. Because what was the value, right? The value wasn't the coin. These These weren't federal trade notes backed by the full faith and credit of the United States, a sovereign was worth a sovereign because it was made out of gold. But there's also other sorts of things. Have any of you ever been at the, at the gas station and seen the little notice on the, on the, on the, on the pump that says, this pump uh, certified 
that it's accurate. You've seen that? I mean, that's what this is talking about. And you know why the government has to go in and inspect pumps? Because people were finagling their pumps to not give you the gas that they were actually saying that they were giving you. There's also price gouging. Any of you, any of you ever uh, experienced a hurricane or a natural disaster and then instantly, almost magically, gas prices go way up? It's one of the things in, in Florida, once a state of emergency is declared, gas prices are frozen. There's also profiteering, taking people's misfortune and trying to make money off of it. Another way that we can steal that we might not think about is unpaid debts. Running up debts that we never have any intention of paying off. There's also... Here's one that we might not think about. This is a way you can steal from another person that we might not think about. Theft of reputation. Now next week, we're going to look at the ninth commandment, and I would suggest that gossip is, the actual act of gossiping is a violation of the ninth commandment, but the outcome of gossip is often a violation of the eighth commandment. Because let me tell you, once something gets out into the public about somebody, it doesn't go away, does it? Once your, your good name is dragged through the mud, it's really hard to get it clean. We have been, <clears throat> this year, we have been using the New City Catechism, which is a modern catechism. But I, I love some of the older catechisms, particularly from around the time of the Reformation. And one of those was called the Heidelberg Catechism, so named because it was written in Heidelberg. And the old catechisms often have huge sections in which they go into depth about the Ten Commandments. And so question 110 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks this, what does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? And the answer is this, God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, punishable by law, but in God's sight, theft also includes cheating and swindling our neighbor by schemes made to appear legitimate such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. That's a pretty broad category. In addition, he forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. You know, when it comes to stealing, like all sins, we are all guilty. And yet 90% of evangelical Christians will say that they never break the Eighth Commandment. We've forgotten what stealing really means. We think sometimes that it is just those outright thefts of property, right? We think it's the sneak thieves and the pickpockets. We think it's the guy who busts out our car window in the middle of the night, or the guy who crawls under the church bus and saws off the catalytic converter. But it goes far beyond that. Martin Luther identified certain men of his day, quote, as gentlemen swindlers or big operators 
Far from being pickpockets and sneak thieves who loot a cash box, they sit in office chairs and are called great lords and honorable good citizens, and yet with great show of legality, they rob and steal. John Calvin, also a reformer, said this, It follows, therefore, that not only are those thieves there are those who, thieves who secretly steal the property of others, but also those who seek gain from the loss of others, accumulate wealth by unlawful practices, and are more devoted to their private advantage than to equity. It's easy for us to, to point at somebody who gets caught shoplifting or stealing money from the library But there are lots of us who sit in chairs and behind a desk and work the numbers in such a way so that in the end, we're stealing. And so if we see that theft is a universal problem, one that we are all guilty of, we need to ask the question, why is it wrong anyway? Now, We should always remember that when God commands us to do something, we should do it. God commands us to not to steal. And so we shouldn't. But we should also never forget that God always has a reason. Now, sometimes we can't see it. Sometimes our sin and our culture create such obfuscation for us, such a a sort of, uh, you know the phrase fog of war? Right? When, when, when you're on the battlefield and you don't really know what's happening and, and things are crazy and you don't really have it. Well, in our world, there's a fog of sin. It keeps us from seeing what's really happening. It keeps us from really seeing the lay of the land. And sometimes in our, in our fog of sin, we can't see, can't understand God's reason. But God always has a logic behind what he commands. And I would say that if we seek to understand and know more about God, as believers, it is our responsibility to seek out that logic. Knowing that on this side of the new heaven and the new earth, sometimes we will never be able to. That we see through a glass darkly. But that we should seek God's logic. And so if we look at the Eighth Commandment, what we see is that central to this is concepts of God's provision and God's providence, and also the concept of stewardship. See, stealing, You stealing, me stealing, stealing is a failure to understand, recognize, and believe and trust in God's provision for us. We just prayed this morning, give us this day our daily bread. That is an expression of trust in God's providence, in God's provision for us. God will give us our daily bread, what we need for today. You know, there's 
Over and over again in Scripture, we're, we're shown examples of the need to trust in God's provision, the need to trust in God's providence. When Israel is wandering through the desert, wandering through the wilderness, God provides for them manna from heaven, correct? But what is God's commandment to them? God's commandment to them is don't take more than what you need for today. Except on Friday when you gather enough for Friday and for the Sabbath on Saturday. And most people followed it and some didn't. They were concerned. They were, didn't think that God was going to come through for them. And so what did they do? They gathered more than they needed for a day. They kept some to the side. They took a doggy bag home. And the next day when they opened that doggy bag to have their leftovers, because we all know that sometimes leftovers are better, right, than the original thing. Except these leftovers weren't. They were rotten and decayed and fouled and bespoiled because they had not trusted in God's providence. They had not trusted in God's provision. God wants us to to fully trust in Him. God wants us to, to know and understand and to trust that He will provide for us. And when we take something that does not belong to us, what we are saying is that we don't trust God to provide for us. What we're saying is that what I have is good, but I want more, and I don't trust God to give me what I need. Theft also undermines God's providence and God's provision for another. If you're taking what God has given to someone else, you are undermining God's provision for them. See, at the core of this, nowhere in the Eighth Commandment does it say you have a, a right to property, but that's the underlying principle behind it, right? Because if you can take something that belongs to somebody else. That means it belongs to somebody else. That means that they have the right of ownership. Otherwise, to say, do not steal, doesn't make any sense, right? If nobody owns anything, if nobody has a right to ownership, then nobody can steal. But to to take something from somebody else, to take something that they have a right of ownership over, is to take something away from them Assuming that they have not taken it from someone else. Because we all love Robin Hood, right? But to take something from someone else that they have a right of ownership over is to take something away from them that God has given them. To to take something away from them that they have a right of ownership over is to undermine what God has given to them, God provided for them, and his providence for their provision. And, and we don't have a right to take what God has given to someone else. And this leads us to the, to the positive side of the commandment. 
Remember, we've, we've talked about this, that each commandment has a, has a negative side, the do not part, and then a positive side, the implication of the, the positive thing that we're supposed to be doing because of the do not. The, the positive side of the eighth commandment is, is stewardship. That God doesn't just give us things for our own purposes, but that God gives things to us for us to use for His glory. This is what we might call, again, stewardship. One of the reasons that we wanted to, to go home, that I wanted to go to Florida, is little dude just turned one and my mom and dad weren't able to come up for his birthday and so we wanted to to celebrate with them which turned into like the Hanukkah of birthdays I think every day he he was there he got something new from my parents he's the only grandchild it's it's going to happen but one of the last things that was given to him was a little a little book. The book was written um, on behalf of the Mississippi Forestry Association. We're, we're landowners in Mississippi. My great-grandfather, the first Stacia McNeese, um, over the course of his lifetime, I hope honestly and through his own hard work and not through taking advantage of others, accumulated a large farm went across two counties. And when he passed away, it was split up amongst his children, and then it has continued down. But since my daddy is an only child, and I am an only child, I am going to eventually inherit the full split. Unlike some other cousins of my generations who are getting like 16th shares. But this book from the Mississippi Forestry Association is a book for kids and it's about teaching kids about what it means to be a forest landowner, what it means to be a tree farmer. See, I know many of you wouldn't think of this, but I am in fact a farmer. I just grow trees and don't do any of the work. And my farm is in another state. But other than that, I'm just like a farmer. But one of the keys to this book is expressing to kids that those of us who have been blessed to be given control of this land with these trees have a responsibility of stewardship. That we have a responsibility to the land. That we have a responsibility to those in the, in, the, in the timber industry who are dependent for work upon the product that we grow. That we have a responsibility to those who came before us to look after the land and look after what they have given us. And then we have a responsibility to those who will come after us to pass on to them that which was passed on to us, hopefully even in better condition than what we received. This is stewardship. I will also say I could not get through the book 
reading it to Jamie in front of my father without crying, but that's another story. See, a steward is someone who cares for another's property. So how am I a steward of this land in Mississippi, right? Because it belongs to us, but it doesn't. It belongs to God. God has made us stewards, and as such, we are not free to use what he has given us however we feel. But we are called to use it how God has intended for it to be used for his glory and for his purposes and for his benefit. And to do otherwise would, in fact, be theft from the rightful owner, who is God. This is really hard for us because we have a, a country and a culture and a society that is so firmly entrenched in this idea of personal property and personal ownership that it's hard for us to remember that the, the money that is in our pocket, the land that we own, the car that we drive, the, the bank account balance on the, the bank account, the, the stock portfolio, whatever it is that we have does not, in fact, belong to us. Now, I know some of you just had the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And I get it, and I understand. And I want to say, I'm a, I'm a big fan of private property. I'm not a real big fan of, you know, somebody coming in and taking my stuff and giving it to somebody else. But I also know that whatever I have, I have because God has given it to me. Because God has given it to me to be a steward over, to, to take care of it, to not let it fall into disrepair. That's one of the things that a good steward does, right? They maintain and maybe even improve the value of something that they have been given. They don't let it fall into disrepair. This is one of the reasons that the stewards of the house of Gondor have failed as stewards in the Lord of the Rings. Because they have failed to maintain the kingdom in the absence of the king. They have let it slowly by slowly, little bit by little bit, fall under the shadow of evil. They have failed as stewards because they have not taken care of it. Another way for us to be stewards is to to not be wasteful, to not take that which we have been given and just waste it. This is the sin of the prodigal son, right? He takes what has been given to him, what is actually, in fact, not even his to take yet, because it's in his inheritance and his daddy isn't dead. And so it's almost like saying, hey, pops, I wish you would die so I could go spend my, your mom, my money. And he takes it and he goes into a far country and he wastes it. It's not like he goes into a far country and establishes a steel empire, and eventually, you know, starts a bunch of libraries, and his name is Andrew Carnegie, right? That's not the story of the prodigal son. 
The story of the prodigal son is a man who takes his inheritance and wastes it on loose and fast living. We can't be good stewards of something if we're being wasteful of it. You know, this is, this is the fundamental problem, the fundamental sin in gambling. Because it's taking that which is God has given you stewardship over and wasting it. Because here's the thing. You may be up at some point, but eventually the house always wins. Because otherwise they wouldn't be in business. I mean, you can think you're really good at knowing when to split and knowing when to hit and knowing when to stay. But eventually, you sit at the blackjack table long enough, the dealer's going to win. And you will have wasted all of your money. Did you know that in our, com- our country, that more money is spent every year on gambling than on food and clothing combined? It's one of the reasons that I was really happy to see these skill arcades be closed down. Another way that we can be, need to be good stewards is being a good steward means working hard. It means working hard. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this, Let the thief no longer steal. But let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is the story of Zacchaeus. Right? We love that story. We love that story, particularly when we're little kids, because we get to sing, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Right? I think I might have that a little wrong. It's been a long time since I've been in vacation Bible school. But this is the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was, was, a, was a tax collector. And what did the tax collectors do? It, it wasn't like, you know, they received a salary from Rome. and then No, their job was to collect the taxes, skim whatever off the top that they could get away with, and send on to Rome what they needed to send on to Rome. He was, he was, they were th- thieves. They were telling people, your tax rate is 20% when it was really 15 and taking that extra five for themselves. Go back and read the story of Zacchaeus and, and what happens. And Jesus calls him down out of the tree and he goes and eats dinner with him, which of course is one of the worst things that Jesus could do, of course, right? Eating with a sinner. As if the Pharisees themselves weren't sinners. And when Zacchaeus is converted, one of the things that he tells Jesus, he says, I'm going to give back everything that I have taken. And if I've taken anything even more dishonestly than usual, I will give it back sevenfold. Being good steward means working hard with what you've been given. Not resting on your laurels, not taking it easy. That's the the parable of the good stewards that Jesus gives us, tells us, and shows us this. Being a good steward also means to live generously. You know, there are 
three kinds of attitudes that we can have about stuff. There's the attitude, what is yours is mine and I'm going to take it. That's the attitude of a thief. There's also the attitude, which is the attitude I think of most of us, many of us, what is mine is mine and I'm going to keep it. And then there's the biblical attitude about stuff, which is what is mine is God's and I'll share it. I've always found it really interesting that uh, um, Mormons have this commandment on them basically to be preppers and to have stockpiles of food. And I got really interested a couple of months in this, wanting to figure out, okay, what is their justification? Where is this coming from? Because it's a little weird, and I also I've got a little bit of prepper in me. You can just look at our freezer and see that. And I wanted to figure it out. And so I went and I looked. And what's interesting is they use stewardship as their justification for requiring this of their church members. Because what they say is it is possible that bad times are going to come. And if bad times are going to come, then we need to be prepared to serve and to share with others. Because Even if we're just taking care of our own family in hard times, that means that someone else isn't having to take care of us and they can take care of someone who is in need. There are many, most things that I would disagree with Mormons about, but that actually makes a lot of sense. Let's prepare in good times so that we can share in bad times. See, the biggest way that we violate the Eighth Commandment, the biggest way that we steal, the biggest way that we thieve, the biggest way that we take things that aren't intended for us, for ourselves, is that we steal them from God. We we, we forget that all that we have is His. We forget that we are not owners of, but stewards. We, we, we don't give financially to him and to his work locally and globally the way that we could and should. We don't give to him the best of our time and talents. We don't use them for his glory We waste time, and in doing so, we rob God. We Finally, we break his law, and we take something from him that is rightfully his, and we take it for ourselves, and that is our obedience. Our obedience is not ours, but belongs to God. And we take it, and we seal it from him when we break his law. You know, as we have gone through the Ten Commandments, I think that we're seeing that we are unable to follow a single one of them. And so here in the Eighth Commandment, we must acknowledge that we are all thieves. This this is the beauty of the law. 
The beauty of the law is this. It confronts our sin. It shows us our unworthiness. It declares to us our need for God. That's the beauty of it. And then the good news is this. That in our need, God has sent his son. To die for all sinners, even thieves. And in fact, if you'll remember, Christ is crucified between two thieves. Two others, criminals, thieves, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. They divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself. If This is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we are getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Two thieves. One who could not understand that what was happening to him was just and was fair. And one who understood that. And understood that the man on the middle cross was there unjustly. That the man on the middle cross was not a thief. In fact, quite the opposite. He was the one who gave everything. And so he cries out to him, remember me. And in his dying breaths Jesus promises that man an inheritance which he had foolishly his entire life wasted trying to find living a life that led him to be hung on a cross to die and in his dying breaths Jesus gives him that inheritance because the thief says remember me that is the good news for thieves and sinners. That is the good news for us. Our hymn of invitation this morning is hymn number 44 for the beautiful.